All right. So, get back into this here. So, in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, we're told that in the uh, ministry of Jesus early on, when he was just beginning his ministry, Jesus was traveling around Galilee. He was teaching in the synagogues. He was preaching the good news of the kingdom. He was healing every kind of disease and sickness. And so the news about him, not surprisingly, spread. And large crowds were coming to know Jesus, coming to hear Jesus. Now, Matthew tells us towards the end of chapter 4 that these people came from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, if you're like me, you probably just read right past those place names thinking, yep, a lot of different places. Uh, But I've mentioned before that for the past year or two now, I've been listening to uh, a podcast called the Bema Discipleship Podcast, which is, I think, just an amazing tool for learning to read the Bible well. I soak in it, like, every week for several times. Uh, Marty Solomon, the, the teacher on Bema, points out that those place names are actually very significant. Galilee was a region in northern Israel populated mainly by faithful religious Jews who didn't want to be corrupted by the Greek and Roman culture. The Decapolis was a region with ten cities east and south of the Sea of Galilee where non-Jewish pagans lived. And Jerusalem and Judea, uh, in that area, you had the more sophisticated, urbane Jews who thought that mixing their Jewish faith with Greek and Roman culture was perfectly okay. And so many of those Jews kind of viewed the Jews in Galilee with disdain. And the Galilean Jews said right back at you, uh, basically, right? Uh, They saw them as totally backslidden. And then those beyond the Jordan may very well be referring to the zealots who lived across the Jordan River to the north and who believed that violent revolution was really the only way to be faithful Jews and get rid of the Romans. So this was quite a mishmash of people coming to hear Jesus. And it was a mishmash of people who did not get along with each other, who who wouldn't even associate with each other many times and and would have seen at least some of those others as enemies. It would have been at least as polarized a crowd as our culture is today. And it's when this crowd gathers that Jesus delivers his Sermon on the Mount and talks specifically about loving our enemies. So this is week two of our our sermon series called Tough Stuff. And today I'm going to talk about that challenging command from Jesus to love our enemies. You know, what does that even mean and how are we supposed to do it? So that's where we're going today. You ready? Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. Uh, We open ourselves to you because we know you're here. We know Uh, You're at work in our midst. We trust that. We believe that. We expect you, Lord, to come and and speak to our hearts and our minds today. So come and and do that work in us, and we just want to receive all you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. So this is Matthew chapter 5. Just going to read the first two verses to begin. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. You know, it's actually not totally clear 
who Jesus was talking to when he gave his Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I've always pictured Jesus preaching this message to a huge crowd of people spread out on the mountainside. But what the text actually says is that it was Jesus' disciples who came to him and he taught them. Now, maybe the crowd was listening in too. I mean, who knows? But it seems likely that maybe his disciples had some questions. You know, maybe they saw this diverse crowd of people, some of them faithful Jews who they would have expected to be there. They would have said, oh, those people clearly belong here. But also a lot of people who in their eyes did not belong. They're pagans, Jews who had compromised with Rome, some of the corrupt priests from Jerusalem. Now, I wonder if his disciples were asking Jesus, what are those people doing here? Should we get rid of them for you? And so Jesus responds by first giving them what we know of as the Beatitudes. Now, I won't read those now. You might want to go back and do that later. But, but the overall message of what Jesus says through those Beatitudes is this. All those people who you think are not included, who you think are not qualified for God's blessing and favor, the kingdom of God is for them too. See, I think maybe the first thing Jesus is saying to us through this as we think about loving our enemies is that a lot of people whom we might think of as our enemies really aren't. The culture wars in which we live are pretty intense, aren't they? Yeah, we've got elections coming up again. That'll be fun. (laughs) We've got this whole Roe versus Wade issue and the Supreme Court thing going on. I mean, we have an incredibly divided nation on all sorts of hot-button issues. It is really easy to vilify and dehumanize those with whom we disagree. And a lot of that is driven by fear. But what if God loves and is at work in all of those whom I might think of as enemies just as much as he is in me? And not just to get them to agree with me either, right? That's not, you know, he's at work in them to get them to agree with me. It's like, no, I don't think that's necessarily it. I'm in a group with a couple of other guys. We meet every uh, Friday morning, and what we do is we read a book, and then we talk through it uh, chapter by chapter on Friday mornings. And for quite a while now, we've been reading a book by the well-known monk Thomas Merton called New Seeds of Contemplation. And in that book, Merton writes this. He says, do not be too quick to assume that your enemy is a savage just because he's your enemy. Perhaps he's your enemy because he thinks you are a savage. Or perhaps he's afraid of you because he feels you are afraid of him. And perhaps if he believed you were capable of loving him, he would no longer be your enemy. Do not be too quick to assume that your enemy is an enemy of God just because he's your enemy. Perhaps he's your enemy precisely because he can find nothing in you that gives glory to God. Perhaps he fears you because he can find nothing in you of God's love and God's kindness and God's patience and mercy and understanding of the weakness of men. Wow, huh? Yeah. See, I think especially in all these culture war issues, 
Jesus is inviting us to love our enemies by refusing to think of the other side, whatever the other side is for you, to think of them as an enemy. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them. But what if we trusted Jesus enough and allowed our trust in him to empower us to love others like he does, rather than letting fear shape our lives? I See, I think that's God's invitation to us today, to trust Jesus enough to love like he loves. Read on a little. This is verses 17 to 20 in Matthew 5. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we could spend the whole morning unpacking that one, but um, just to say that verse, the part about abolishing or fulfilling the law is, I think, often misunderstood. I mean, it, we, we might think it has something to do with Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. Or, or I know I've heard it taught that it's about how we couldn't obey the Old Testament commandments, so Jesus came and did it for us. But abolishing and fulfilling the law actually had a very specific meaning in the first century Jewish world. I mean, first of all, by the law, just so we're clear, that meant the commands God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, you know, what we think of as the Ten Commandments, although that's the, the short form, right? There's actually 613 in total uh, commands from God. Well, to fulfill the law in the first century Jewish world meant to interpret it correctly, but not just interpret it intellectually, which is what we think of when we hear that word, right? Not just to in- interpret it legally, not just to understand what the law said, It also included walking out that interpretation so that others could see it lived out by you. That's fulfilling the law. Yeah, to interpret the law correctly meant your life, your actions matched the true meaning of the law. That's how you could fulfill the law. And if you didn't do that, you know, if you didn't live and act in a way consistent with what those commands actually meant, even if you understood them correctly, well, that was called abolishing the law. So some people clearly thought Jesus was abolishing the law because he was including people they thought the law said should not be included. He was hanging out with people who were sinners, who were compromisers. So he wasn't living out what they thought of as the correct meaning of the law. But Jesus is saying, no, I am not abolishing the law. I'm fulfilling it. I am showing you through my words and my life what has always been the true meaning and purpose of those commandments, what God always intended from the law. It's not just about changing your behavior. It's about changing your heart. 
It's about trusting God enough, trusting Jesus enough to love like he loves. Then picking up again in verse 38, Jesus said, you have heard, it, heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Watchman Nee was a, a Chinese pastor and author who wrote a number of, of great books about living as disciples of Jesus. This is going back a while. I think I read these in the 70s, but really, really good books. Uh, and, and in one of those, he writes about a Chinese Christian who owned a rice paddy uh, next to a paddy owned by a man who was an atheist. Well, the Christian irrigated his paddy by pumping water out of a canal using one of those leg-operated pumps that make the user appear like he's riding a bicycle. I don't know if you've ever seen those. You kind of sit on the thing, turn the cranks, and then it pumps water. And apparently he had to do this every day because every day after the Christian had pumped enough water to fill his field, the atheist would come out, remove some boards that kept the waters in the, in the Christian's field, and let all of it drain down into his own field. That way he didn't have to pump. It was a great system. Well, this continued day after day, and finally the Christian prayed, Lord, if this keeps up, I'm going to lose all my rice, right? He's draining all of my water. Uh, I might even lose my field. I've got a family to care for. What am I going to do? When well, answer to his request, the Lord put a thought in his mind. So the next morning, he rose much earlier in the pre-dawn hours of darkness and started pumping water into the field of his atheist neighbor. And then he replaced the boards and pumped water into his own rice paddy. And in a few weeks, both fields of rice were doing well. And the atheist became a Christian. <laughs> See, that Christian farmer, the rice farmer, was living out what Jesus is describing in this passage. Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, that is in the Old Testament law. It was written to prevent an escalating cycle of revenge where you steal my goat, so I burn down your farm, and then you kill my entire family, so I wipe out your village, and on and on and on, right? Kind of the world in which we live. The retribution, the law was saying, has to fit the crime. You can't escalate it like that. But Jesus is saying the heart of that law was not just to stop the cycle of revenge, nor was it just to make sure that you were compensated fairly for your loss. The heart was that God wanted us to see even our enemy who hurts us as a person and to help them see us as a person. That's how you fulfill that command. Notice how Jesus specifically talks about getting hit on the right cheek. I need a volunteer for this. Who's brave? Come on up. Somebody's brave. All right, here we go. Here we go. He knows this, so uh, I know I'm pretty sure. Yeah, all right. So in the ancient world, 
any physical interactions between people were typically done with the right hand because the left hand was used for toilet duty, shall we say, right? It was viewed as unclean. So you would never do anything to another person with your left hand, typically. So to hit someone with my right hand, hit me with my right hand, hit one of my cheeks with my right hand, which one are you going to hit? Which is what? My left cheek, right? With his right hand, he's going to hit my left cheek. So let's say he, though, he wanted to hit my right cheek with his right hand. What do you have to do? You have to hit me that way, with the back of his hand, right? See how that works? So you have to do that. Well, to hit somebody with the back of their hand was viewed as a very dismissive, demeaning gesture. It's, it's what you would do to a, a slave. It was dehumanizing. So by turning the other cheek, turning my left cheek to him, after he had hit my, let me get this right, hit my right cheek <laughs> with his right hand, now I'm exposing it so you can hit, hit me. Now you can hit me. The right way, yeah. <laughs> right, that's good. You can sit down. Thank you. It's helpful if you can see it, though, right? You can turn it. But what I'm saying in doing that, what I'm not saying is, oh, hit me again because I'll just take all of your abuse. I have no value of worth, and being a Christian means I have to be a doormat and just take all the abuse I can take, right? That is not what you're saying. No, what it's saying is, if you're going to hit me, hit me like a man. You hit me like I'm your equal, with the palm of your hand. Don't hit me with the back of your hand like, I'm, like you're demeaning me or dehumanizing me. Hit me with the palm of your hand. See me as the person I am. Treat me like a person with dignity. It was calling out the injustice of the slap is really what it was doing, but without fighting back, right? Isn't that something? See, what you're doing is you're offering a third way. You're not being a victim in this case, you're not going after vengeance or retribution either. You're just saying, treat me like a person. Let's figure this out. That makes sense? Yeah? That's loving your enemy. But you have to trust Jesus. You have to trust that he's going to be taking care of you. You have to trust that he's at work, even in this, for you to do that, to love your enemy like that. You have to trust Jesus enough to love like he loves. The other two examples Jesus gives are the same thing. You know, if someone is suing you for your tunic, it meant that was all you had. You had already lost all your money, all your land, anything of value that you had. You had nothing left for them to take except the clothes you're wearing. So this means that person who is suing you has no concern for you as a person. He's treating you as if you have no value. And so if you're going to sue me for my, my tunic, my outer garment is really what the Greek is saying. Well, then take my inner garment too is what it is. Let me, let me stand here naked before you and naked before the judge and naked before everyone else that can see this and expose the injustice of what you are doing in the hopes that that will move you to treat me like a person which is loving that person, right? It's loving him. It's hoping that this guy who's suing you is going to be transformed, but it's also in the same time it's trusting that Jesus is going to take care of you no matter what. It's a third way. It's not being a victim. It's not going after retribution either, though. It's calling out the injustice and seeing your enemy as a person in need of transformation, as are we all. Amen? 
at. The one about the going two miles is the same thing. You know, a Roman soldier could cause you to carry his pack for one mile. He had, that, was, that was a legal thing to do. But it was illegal for him to make you to carry it more than a mile. So if at the end of the mile he says, okay, give me back the pack, and you say, no, I think I'll keep walking for a while with it. Now this Roman soldier is like, wait, wait, now I can get in trouble. You know, now, now you've turned the tables on him, and you're continuing on with the pack, and he's starting to see, oh, maybe it's, maybe it's not okay to treat someone like this because, you know, now I'm the one that's, that's being put at risk. I'm the one that could be punished. I could be beat by my commander or whatever because I'm doing something that breaks the law. It's, it's again, it's, you're not... You're, you're not playing the victim. It's not saying, oh, I just have to do whatever. I have to be a doormat. It's a third way because you're not fighting back either, but you are exposing the injustice, and maybe, just maybe, he becomes a bit more human as a result. See, think for a moment about someone you would consider to be an enemy. Maybe you wouldn't use that word, but someone who disagrees with you, someone who doesn't see the world the way you see it, you know, uh, someone um, maybe who's working to achieve goals that are at odds with your goals, the way you think the world would be, someone who doesn't believe what you believe. Or maybe it's people who frighten you, you know, who seem in one way or another to be a threat to you, to your way of life. What would be a third way with them? Not being a victim, not fighting back, but in some way helping them become a more human person. What would it look like for you to trust Jesus enough to love them like he does? I've had some pastor friends over the years with very strong opinions about theological issues or political issues that were quite different from mine. (laughs) Um, And there have been times when we've got into it, you could say. Um, And uh, they've been very vocal about their views. Sometimes I felt like I've been attacked in pretty harsh ways in, in those situations. Well, my natural response to that is, is one of two things. Either, you, you know, I learn to keep my views to myself so that it doesn't create a problem, or if they attack me, I try to defend myself by attacking right back, right? Go right back at them, trying to convince them that I am right and they are wrong. Well, neither response builds good relationships. You can understand that, right? So one of the things I've been learning, and I think the Emotionally Focused course that we talk about a lot has really helped me with this, helped me to grow in this, is first of all, asking questions to understand their view better. That's a third way, right? And then also, it's helped me with taking the risk of sharing my own views without feeling like I need to change their views. That was kind of a revelation to me. I could do that. I didn't have to speak to win, right? I could just share my views. They could have their views. We could disagree, but we could still be connected. Could you imagine if our world functioned that way? See, that's shalom. That's shalom. You can have this view. I can have this view, and we can still be connected. That's trusting Jesus enough to love like he loves 
starting in verse 43. I don't know if you're all like dumbfounded by that, trying to think of it, or I've just totally lost you all. Yeah, you're getting this, okay? Yeah, all right. <laughs> Starting in verse uh, 43, yes. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet, uh, or if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That last line is a quote from the book of Le- Leviticus, except that in Leviticus, instead of saying perfect, it says you shall be holy for I am holy. And that's probably the word. Holy is probably the word Matthew used when he first wrote that gospel in Hebrew before it got translated to Greek. Well, Leviticus is all about how to be a priest. We're told over and over in the scriptures that we are to be a kingdom of priests. That's our calling in in the world. We're to be people, in other words, who show the world what God is like and help people connect with God. That's what a priest does. Well, to be a good priest, you must be holy, it's telling us, which means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to be like God. Otherwise, how can we show the world what God is like unless we are like him? And while some of that has to do with our behavior, at its root, what it means is we are to be people who love like God's love. That's the core of it, and that includes loving our enemies. But we can only do that if we trust Jesus. We can only do that if we trust him to care for us, if we trust him to provide for us, if we trust him to protect us, we trust him to lead us into his shalom, we trust him that he's always at work for our good, we trust him even through suffering and death. We trust him in all things, all the time. If we trust Jesus enough, to love him like he loves, or love like he loves, then we can love our enemies. Amen? Amen.